Two and a Half Admins, episode 148. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. Let's do some news then. Now, it's worth mentioning that we're recording a week early for reasons, but we have to talk about Reddit. Where do we even start with this? I think we start with the fact that uh, Reddit is currently experiencing a major protest from a lot of communities with the support of millions of Redditors in those communities. And the original reason for that protest is because of an API policy change that looks disturbingly familiar to anybody who remembers Twitter's API policy change when all of a sudden Twitter just basically says, oh, hey, it turns out now we're going to charge so much for your APIs that nobody who's using APIs can afford to anymore. Which time? Well. Remember Twitter killed all the apps like two other times even before the most recent? (laughs) Yeah, but there's a difference. It's not an honest outright, we're killing this, we're changing the API. It's a, oh, we're just suddenly going to demand inordinate amounts of money for the API that none of the API's users can afford. Yeah, and this has effectively killed third-party apps like Apollo, right? Well, it's certainly set to. Note that we're talking about Reddit again. We're not still talking about Twitter's past oopsies. Uh, So yeah, Apollo and other third-party apps have stated outright that there's no possible way they can continue under the proposed API pricing changes, which certainly makes sense because for Apollo, that would amount to about $20 million a year. So this is a problem not only because it disrupts people who are making third-party apps, it's a problem because uh, Reddit's website and its official app are very much not disability accessible. There is a very real concern that killing off third-party apps effectively means just putting visually disabled and you know some other users completely out in the cold and making Reddit utterly unusable for them. There's also the issue that, you know, unlike Twitter, all the moderation on Reddit It's community moderation. It's volunteer-based. And again, much like the accessibility, Reddit's inbuilt tools absolutely suck for that. And in a lot of larger communities, due to the scale, it's it's effectively impossible to actually moderate those large communities using only Reddit-native tools. They need third-party apps for that. So this spawned the protest. The protest was originally supposed to be a two-day blackout on Monday and Tuesday of the week that we're recording, but it got extended In my opinion, in large part because Reddit CEO Steve Huffman, a.k.a. Spez, wrote a memo for his employees, which got leaked to The Verge, which said, We have not seen any significant revenue impact so far, and we will continue to monitor. There's a lot of noise with this one, among the noisiest we've seen. Please know that our teams are on it, and like all blowups on Reddit, this one will pass as well. (laughs) Now, for speaking... Personally, as the, uh, the the moderator of RZFS, this took the protest from like a two-day thing and showing support to, oh, I see what the stakes are now. This is for real. I very much do not appreciate this idea that Redditors are just voiceless resources to be exploited, whatever they think about it. Huffman should have seen that millions of the users that are the only reason that his company has any value have real problems with the company is doing and should be paying attention to that and figuring out how to deal with it, not just distributing snide internal memos telling employees, oh, it's noisy, but just wait for it to blow over. Yeah, like I understand that Reddit has been transparent over the fact that it's currently not profitable and they've done their IPO and they want to look like a grown up and make money, but 
how do they expect to accomplish that by raising the prices on API to take away the tools the community uses to moderate and, and make something useful that people want to come and see and get all the crap and deal with the dumpster fire that is the internet. When you take away all the tools, all you're going to do is end up with unmoderated Reddit, which is not going to be worth anything to anybody. No, it's really not. And so targeting specifically the tools people use to make Reddit good seems like the worst possible way to try to make a couple of extra dollars in order to make Reddit profitable. It is, but even above and beyond that, like I said, at least for me personally, the scope of this jumped up drastically when I saw that leaked memo that basically just said, ignore the peons. No, dude, no, we're not peons. We're not resources for you to extract money from. I have been supporting that freaking site directly and financially for over a decade. I have thrown out hundreds of dollars worth of Reddit gold, not because I think there's some intrinsic value directly in it, but because A, you know, it gives people a nice little feeling to see like the little gold thing they got given or whatever. But more importantly, specifically to funnel money directly to the site, which was not charging me to make sure that I was the customer, not the product. So now to be told, not only are you the product, but you're a product that just needs to shut up and we'll wait until you do. Nope, you are incorrect, Mr. Huffman. And so you really think that this is not going to blow over then? Because it's going to be funny if people are listening to this in a week and it has all blown over. I can't tell you anything for certain about the protest as a whole. I can tell you it's not going to blow over for me. Spez made this permanent when he distributed that memo and that memo leaked The Verge and I saw what he had to say about the concerns of, again, literally legitimate concerns of millions of his users. That made it very, very real to me. And I can't tell you what the entire protest will do. I can tell you that one way or another, once this is all done, either there has been an apology from Huffman or from, you know, the, the company as a whole, whatever, that, that really means something. And they have begun actually working with millions of users on their concerns, or I'm done. RZFS might still be there. That's not up to me directly. You know, I'm the moderator. I'm not the god. I don't get to have sole control over the content of thousands of other people, as well as myself. But I can certainly determine what I'm going to do, and I'm not going to continue giving them several hours a day of unpaid work when it's been made very clear that I'm just a serf to them. Is the bigger picture here similar to what we talked about when we last recorded, when we talked about Slack? That charging for this API access is about stopping people from training models with Reddit data. I don't think that it's about stopping people from uh, using the API to, to train AI models. I think it has more to do with the idea that Reddit is such a valuable resource for people looking to train AI models on text data that they're like, well, you need to pay us what this is worth. And I have nothing against a pricing model that makes sense for AI model creators based on all of those things. That's fine. But that doesn't mean that like everybody who wants to create an app that makes it easier for blind people to access the site or from moderators to moderator. Like we don't all need to be paying money, you know, like we're some venture capitalist funded startup full of bros in the Bay Area looking to make, you know, the, the next chat GPT out of the damn thing. Obviously, Reddit didn't consider a lot of the existing API users and look at what is our new pricing model going to do. For something like Apollo, maybe the right answer for that 
is that as part of authenticating as Jim in the Apollo app, you would use a Jim API key in the free tier that can only do so many queries. But that's going to be enough for you to moderate the subreddits you moderate. And nobody has to pay millions of dollars. But since the way it works is Apollo, the app, has one API key for every user and is already in working on behalf of those users, then they have this big bill. And that doesn't make sense. If they had thought about it differently, they could keep the premium API access and have really expensive API for, I want to drink from the fire hose of everything on Reddit and train a bot or whatever, and have that still cost a lot of money, but not in a way where you're breaking like moderation tools or community tools that don't have that need for a scale, but are used by enough people that have that scale. And so if you, you know, each user has an API key, it can only do 2000 queries a month or a week or whatever that would still work and make sure that somebody can't just not have to pay for API access to get large-scale access while not just screwing the users. There are a few ways this is a little bit different from the similar kerfuffles that we've seen so far. And one of the largest is just the extent of the community-driven nature of Reddit to begin with. The thing of value that Reddit has to sell, you know, all this text data that AI companies might want to train models on, it's only sort of kind of theirs. I mean, it, it's theirs in trust. And, you know, based on the terms of service, I probably should look those more closely. It, it might be theirs legally, but like this is not content they created. It's not even content they moderated. I mean, they just put a platform up and millions of people came to that platform and poured their own time and passion and sweat and in many cases, professionalism and knowledge and you name it into creating this resource. The value there is not Reddit's that Reddit created. Reddit created a platform that attracted people to deposit nuggets of value there, but it's their content. It's not really Reddit's content in the first place. Yeah. And kind of to the same point, they've further complicated this whole issue with their way they're making the API no longer able to access not safe for work content, putting third-party app developers who, even if they opt to pay the exorbitant API access fees, now have an inferior view of the site than people using the official Reddit app. Which is also really, really weird. Uh, that was one of the things that I've spent a fair amount of time talking to uh, you know, app developers and fellow moderators in a, uh, a private Discord server where we're discussing the blackout. And I'm trying to understand, like, why are they making things weird about NSFW and, you know, the third-party API to begin with? Reddit knows who you are. Reddit knows what you're trying to access. Whether you're doing that via third-party API calls or first-party API calls, because remember, the reddit.com website, it's just another client that makes API calls. There's not anything magical about that. So it's like, all right, why aren't you doing this verification on the back end? It doesn't make sense to do that on the front end. You should know, should that user be allowed to view NSFW content or not on the back end? And if that user is allowed, then you should send it. And if that user is not allowed, then you should refuse. There's not much that ought to be happening on the front end at the app level for that. And it turns out that, you know, part of the reason for this is basically that, well, you know, Reddit's API doesn't have a lot of the inputs that it would need for that. And I'm like, well, that just kicks the can a little further down the road. That just tells me, well, Reddit has more work to do making their API not half-baked and not suck and have all the features that it needs. This is not an app developer problem. 
This is a back-end developer problem of making sure your back-end can validate data versus users the way it's supposed to be able to. This restriction is creating a disincentive for people to tag stuff as NSFW and undermining the whole utility of flagging this stuff and making sure that people don't see stuff they weren't looking to see. This is just continuing this trend of we're going to make the site worse in order to try to capture some value or something in it. It's not ended well for anybody who's gone down this road before. Is it in shitification? That's a quote I saw somewhere in the article, yes. Yeah, Cory Doctorow coined that one. It's been getting a lot of traction lately, and it's not real hard to understand why. If you remember back to like Dig, one of the kind of Reddit before Reddit, a very similar site even, and it ran into the same problems when they decided to try to make it more profitable and stop just being a community tool, it inshitified right into oblivion and then reddit stole all the sender and now maybe it's come to the end of of reddit's era it doesn't have to be this way though that's the thing that pisses me off about it this is a topic that i've had to spend a lot of thought on personally lately because my ideal outcome of this protest would be an at least apparently sincere apology from huffman for treating reddit's users including myself as just voiceless resources to be extracted along with working with app developers and, you know, the moderators who need extra tools and the visually disabled folks. And just, I mean, coming together and making things work for everybody. And you can, that doesn't mean that you can't make money. It just means that, like, you have to have discussions with the people who one way or another are bringing you that money in the first place. There are a lot of avenues to do that, but... In order to do that, you have to actually have the fucking discussion. Yeah, and part of that could have literally just been engaging with some of the biggest users of the API, things like Apollo, and being like, okay, we need to make this API call more expensive. Can we give you a different API call that maybe has less stuff or just gives you what you need or a way to get a bunch of data in one request to reduce your number of requests? Or how can we work out the pricing for this API so it doesn't break your app and just make your app literally just have to shut down and strand everyone. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Collide, and Collide has some big news. If you're an Okta user, they can get your entire fleet to 100% compliance. If a device isn't compliant, the user can't log into your cloud apps until they fix the problem. It's that simple. Collide patches one of the major holes in zero trust architecture, device compliance. Without Collide, IT struggles to solve basic problems like keeping everyone's OS and browser up to date. Unsecure devices might be logging into your company's apps because there's nothing to stop them. Collide is a simple device trust solution that enforces compliance as part of authentication, and it's built to work seamlessly with Okta. The moment Collide's agent detects a problem, it alerts the user and gives them instructions to fix it. If they don't fix the problem within a set time, they're blocked. Collide's method means fewer support tickets, less frustration, and most importantly, 100% fleet compliance. So visit collide.com slash 25A to learn more or book a demo. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash 25A. Intel has new labels for its next major CPU architecture. Now, it's really straightforward, right? Instead of i3 and i5 and i7 and i9, Now you've got Intel Core 3, Intel Core 5, and Intel Core 7, and you've also got Intel Core Ultra 5, Ultra 7, and Ultra 9. So that means you can't have a core without the Ultra 9, 
and you can't have an Ultra 3. It's really, really simple. Well, you're not adding the core. It was always Core i3, Core i5, Core i7, and then eventually Core i9. The core part's not new. It's just getting rid of the i part that's new, right? But that's not really the big part of this change. The big part of this change is taking the generation name out of the branding for the processor model. And this actually follows a way that people tend to already think about Intel processors. If you ask somebody what's in their laptop, and it's a, a normal user, not like a, you know, hardcore Turbo Elite gamer or, you know, sysadmin or whatever, they're going to say, oh, it's an i7, or it's an i5, or it's an i9. That part's fine. But when you say it's no longer an i7-1300K or whatever, it's just an i7, well, that meets with the way people tend to talk about those processors already, but it's it's actually a bad reinforcement because if you've ever actually needed to sell this stuff or support this stuff, what you find out real quickly is you get people confused because they think their eight-year-old laptop with an i7 is faster than a brand new one with an i3. And let me tell you, it absolutely does not work that way. So what Intel is doing is they're saying it's not an i7 generation number and a K. It's a Core 7 processor, and then you get to say, you know, the actual SKU that actually tells you what the thing is. But they want to stick that word processor in there first. And that strengthens that tendency of people to just think, is it an i3, an i5, or an i7? And again, I just, I don't think that's helpful. I think that's actively a bad reinforcement of an existing tendency. Yes. And then the other thing they're doing that's evil is an Intel Core 7 or whatever, is what the new name for a Pentium is going to be. So Pentium and Celeron will be the core 5 and 7, etc. And the ones that were like an i7 before are the ones that are getting the Ultra branding, basically. So anything that's not an Ultra is the super shitty thing that used to be a completely different name because it was so bad it would dilute the brand. And now it is meant to be easily confused with an existing i7. So basically, this is yet another instance of Intel has made significant changes to their branding schema. Check your wallet. It's a little surprising they didn't just do what they did with the server CPUs and have bronze, silver, gold, and platinum or whatever. And maybe just get rid of the whole 5, 7, and 9 thing and use the generation numbers. A generation 14 gold or a generation 13 silver would honestly convey a lot more meaningful information than a... Ultra 7 processor, some generation number stuck on the end. Am I the only one who thought that what they had, i3, i5, i7, i9, and then the numbers with the K and the KS was relatively straightforward and easy to understand? That part of it was relatively straightforward and easy to understand. What was not straightforward or easy to understand is the just absolutely insane partitioning of, you know, individual features that were enabled in one SKU and disabled another SKU made absolutely no sense. Like literally they had to make a whole website, arc.intel.com, to let you look this stuff up. And they kept breaking the site and changing it and they take off the old one so you can't actually compare it to the thing that you used to have. Yeah. And it, it's bad enough that, you know, if you're custom building systems for years, I was having to read the ARC like every single time, you know, I wanted to change any piece of, of hardware from one year to the next because I found out the hard way that there was no guarantee that a particular feature that should have been in every processor would actually be enabled from one year to the next. We went from the Q6600 way back in the day, the old Core 2 Quad, the Q6600 had hardware virtualization support. And then the next year, the Core 2 Quad, you know, Q6800 came out. And, uh, you know, I just, oh, yeah, there's a new one. Okay, that's fine. And discovered 
guess what? That one doesn't support virtualization. There's just a whole raft of things that Intel turns on and off individually for these little itty-bitty demarcations in the processor families to the point that buying an Intel processor felt a lot like buying an enterprise hard drive. Like you can't just <laughs> rely on the branding. You need to read the damn data sheet before you buy one. Yeah, and those last couple of letters on the end actually probably are the most important, not the least important thing tacked onto the end of the model number. So don't pay for that enterprise hard drive that has the weird kind of encryption and the weird sector size you don't want. What's the business reasoning behind making it complicated, though? I think partly to be able to sell Pentium and Celeron chips as if they were core 7s. The big business reason behind doing this, the idea is that you extract the most amount of money you possibly can out of every segment of the market. So you might very well be profitable selling an i7 for Celeron prices, but it's not all the profit that you could make because there's a segment of the market that would pay you a lot more to have the processor that's that fast. So you need to do market segmentation, even though it doesn't necessarily cost you any less to build a Celeron than to build an i7, you have the different product lines so that you can sell the one for cheap to the people who don't have the money to pay i7 prices. And then you can sell to the people who do have the money to pay for it and get more money out of them. You look at way back in the earliest days of the Celeron, the early Celerons were not actually a separate product line. They were Pentiums that had three quarters of the cash lasered off before it left the factory to make them slower because it was actually cheaper to build everything on a single manufacturing line and then just disable parts of it to make it slower. That was less expensive than keeping two completely separate manufacturing lines going. But Intel has always been very serious about doing as much market segmentation as possible to extract all the resources they can out of all the various segments of the market which can make trying to navigate it an absolute nightmare versus AMD strategy has typically been screw it, throw in all the things, kitchen sink, you know, and uh, one version of this processor will be faster than another. But whether you're talking about uh, top of the line Ryzen or going back to like the little $50 Cabini Tinker Toys, like you're never going to be like, oh, well, we just didn't put hardware virtualization in this one. We disabled that. No, that's not a thing AMD did. So AMD's equivalent of a Celeron, you could run VMs on that thing. Most likely for AMD, it was for the same reason. Making them all the same is just easier to support, easier to build, everything. But Intel is always like, no, we got to, like, even on the, like, silver level Xeon, like, CPUs you pay a lot of money for, only the gold ones included the SHA-256 acceleration. Until AMD came around and all of our chips, even the desktop ones have that. And then Intel's like, well, we can't not give that away anymore. But I think Jim's earlier point was exactly right. There's a whole segment of people that when they go to buy a computer, they're not going to buy one that doesn't say Ultra on it now that Ultra is an option. So one segment of the market will be happy to have their machine have a a Core 7 in it. But there's a segment who, no matter what anybody does, are definitely being to know I have to have the Ultra 7. And if they don't offer an Ultra 7, then that's money that Intel didn't get to make for no reason. I don't think Intel came up with this new naming scheme just like out of the blue. I don't think they just pulled numbers out of a hat. And because there are some things that don't quite make sense about it immediately, I have a feeling that part of this naming scheme came from some consultation with OEMs. Because the first thing that occurred to me is like, okay, so you're putting the Core 3, Core 5, Core 7 stuff up front, when honestly, that's less important than the generation. And your first thought might be, well, it would make more sense to do it the other way around and put the generation up front and put the other thing down below. 
that would also be in Intel's direct interest because it would give more of an impetus to normal people to think, oh, well, my processor is old. It's time to look for an upgrade. And, you know, that is very much in line with the thing that hardware manufacturers want. I suspect that they had some conversations with OEMs and decided not to do that because the problem with it would be that it would also decrease the impetus to pay the extra money to get the Core 5 or Core 7 versus the Core 3 because then people would say, correctly, well, I'm getting a 14th generation. It's going to be way faster than what I had before. So yeah, the three is probably fine. Yeah, and it'll probably give me a better battery life than the seven. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash 25A, support the show and get $100 free credit. From their award-winning support offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. And check out their managed MySQL, Postgres, and MongoDB databases that allow you to quickly deploy a new database and defer management tasks like configuration, managing high availability, disaster recovery, backups, and data replication. Simple and fast to deploy with secure access, their flexible plans include daily backups. So go to leno.com slash 25A, create a free account, and you get $100 in credit and support the show. That's leno.com slash 25A. Let's do some free consulting then. But first, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to join those people, you can go to 2.5admins.com slash support. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to send in your questions for Jim and Alan or your feedback, you can email show at 2.5admins.com. Another perk of being a patron is you get to skip the queue, which is what Patrick has done. He writes, Microsoft has a new file system, ReFS or REFS, who knows how to say it, which is meant to be very resilient. Do you have any thoughts on it? Can you see Windows-heavy organizations wanting this over ZFS so they can have Windows backup servers? The first thing I would say is that REFS is actually not that new. It was introduced with Windows Server 2012 and has been around for a while. Not that that's a bad thing. In general, you want a file system that's not brand spanking new because you want something that's been battle-tested before you start putting your files on it. So the biggest thing I would say there is it's not really that revolutionary and it's not going to provide enough of an advantage to make people that interested in switching. Alan's correct. REFS has been around for quite some time, introduced in Server 2012. Uh, originally, it was intended to be the next-gen replacement for NTFS. And in fact, REFS made its way into Windows 8.1, the consumer operating system. But it got pulled again into Windows 10's tenure, and it's only now starting to, it's starting to show up again in uh, Windows 10, uh, what is it, workstation, I think. Like, like, not the normal professional. Most people are familiar with Windows 10 Home and Windows 10 Pro, but there's a Windows 10 workstation, and that has ref support. It's Pro 4 workstations. Yeah, exactly. So that has ref support, and server has ref support, but the vast majority of, like, even higher-end, you know, consumer systems and just desktop systems in general do not support it. In terms of comparing REFS to ZFS, it's not much of a comparison. I think REFS is probably better compared to Butter, honestly. And even then, <laughs> it comes up lacking in a, in a few key areas. The performance of REFS is utterly atrocious 
in most cases. Like it's fine, again, much like butter. Uh, Refs generally performs okay in like a single disk scenario. But once you start pairing it up with storage spaces, well, now you start seeing a lot of the same problems we have with butter. The performance is reportedly, uh, everybody I know who's tried it has, has said that it's just, it's unusable in striped configurations. You know, like a, a RAID 5 configuration in storage spaces with refs is just a complete no-go. So effectively, you're, you're limited to mirroring. It still doesn't perform that great with that. Uh, there's no built-in user-accessible replication. I've, I've had some big Microsoft fanboys point out that there are API calls you can make I'm told to allow replication, but there's no tooling that actually lets you do that. So it's more of a case of, well, if you buy this incredibly expensive software that happened to use those API calls, then maybe you can actually replicate. But you can't just say, I set up a system with refs, and so now I can replicate from machine A to machine B the way that you could with ZFS or even with Butter. There's also the issue that Ref still doesn't support all of the file system features it would need to either to be bootable with Windows right now or to actually have application data for all the different types of applications. Now, this is something that Microsoft has been working on, but uh, and that has started to change. But until very recently, like you couldn't run SQL Server off of a ref's volume. There were certain types of like media files even that you could not put there because those files required an alternate data stream that is present in NTFS, but was not until very recently implemented in refs. And my understanding is it's still not there in like production refs. It's like the beta versions of refs that you can get in an insider build support some of those things. So it's just, it's not very useful right now. I literally don't know of any organization like that, that I personally like see and interact with. I don't know of any of them that are using it in production. Yeah, like Jim said, it only implemented a subset of the APIs that were used for NTFS, meaning some filters and, and, and tools that you could use on NTFS don't work. Doesn't support object IDs or the NTFS compression or transactional NTFS, which is probably why SQL Server didn't work, yep. or extended attributes. You don't even get disk quotas. And then, like you said, alternate data streams didn't come until preview versions of, of Server 2022. And just without those things, it's, it's a weird file system. So it's been around a long time, and it seems like it's maybe finally going to get somewhere. You know, starting with Windows Server 2022 and Windows 11 21 half 2, the Windows bootloader finally supports booting from a volume formatted REFS, but only if it's version 3. If it's version 1, the boot code can't even read it to boot from it. And REFS version 3 is not the version of REFS that you get with those operating systems, to be clear. Yeah, I think it's only server 2022 with the preview. Can you get version 3 point something? Version 3.2 came with server 2016, but only in the year 2017. And mostly... They shipped it early to support their version of dedupe. Yeah. So if you're getting a picture of something that has been backburnered and half-assed for a long time, that's the correct picture to get. And right now, if you are a very Windows-heavy shop that wanted next-generation storage system advantages, I wouldn't use refs to do it. Even if you wanted to stay like, you know, an almost entirely Windows shop, Honestly, you'd be better off setting up a ZFS server and, you know, putting a big ZVOL on it and formatting that NTFS and using that with your separate Windows box across the network, whether you're doing NFS or iSCSI or, you know, whatever. 
you're going to be better off getting your next generation storage advantages that way than trying to rely on refs for them. Although I do learn in Windows Insider Preview for 2023 half two, they're adding Z standard compression support to REFS. I wonder where they got that idea from. <laughs> Yay. Right, well, we better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send any questions or your feedback. You can find me at jrs.com slash mastodon. You can find me at jrs-s.net slash social. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.